Promo Kitchen is a nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. If you're a new listener, the PK Podcast is a community-inspired conversation featuring guest suppliers, distributors, and service providers discussing insights into the $20 billion promotional products industry. My name is Mark Graham, CEO of Common Skew, and I'm joined by fellow chef Robert Fiveash, president of Brand Fuel Promotions. Today, we are going to speak with one of the coolest people in the industry, Jim Martin. Jim is the president of Colder Incorporated, which is the parent company of industry icon, Numo Manufacturing. We wanted Jim on the program so we could learn from him what it takes to create a much-loved supplier brand, how to compete with a made-in-the-USA product line, and how he's been able to move beyond koozies and into a diverse collection of product categories. Jim has been in the promotional products industry for 16 years, and he came to the job with a background in manufacturing, finance, and accounting. Jim is married with two kids and a dog. Jim, welcome to the program, my friend. Thanks for having me. So, Jim, why don't you tell the Promo Kitchen community as to how you got into this crazy industry 16 years ago? (laughs) It's funny. My wife and I met in college, and we were working in Dallas. I was working for an engineering firm. I'm an engineer by degree. And her father actually owned the business and started the business in 1982. And as I think a lot of both suppliers and distributors in the industry, they're family businesses, and he gave us an opportunity to join up and see where it would lead us, and here I am. So you had no understanding of the promotional products industry. You just found out about it through the family, and then next thing you knew, you were in this line of work. It wasn't something that you had prepared for. No, no, not at all. Right. It was all kind of brand new to us. And in fact, we're a little different from a lot of traditional, quote unquote, promotional product suppliers and that we're actually manufacturers and we make things. So I came to the business believing that I was working for a manufacturing company. Mm. And over time, I learned more and more about the promotional products world. And, you know, for us, it's one main channel of distribution for us. And so, yeah, I kind of learned about it coming from that perspective, not from the traditional, you know, here is our business and we are suppliers to the promotional products world. Right. So when you first joined, you had more of your engineering operations hat on. At what point did you shift gears and become more visible? Because, of course, I've known you from my distributor background for many years and you've been very out in front of customers. When did you make that shift from the operational side into more of the industry visibility side? Yeah, you know, it's funny. When my wife and I first came to work, our business is headquartered in deep South Texas. And in 1998, there wasn't even a gap where we lived, right? When we moved from Dallas down there. So one of the first things that we started doing was traveling to trade shows. And that's kind of how I got to learn a little bit about the industry. And all the while, I still was in an operations kind of role. But it was an opportunity for my wife and I to get out and travel a little bit and see different cities and get out of lovely South Texas And so then we had a family, and so we dialed back our travel when we had kids. And in 2007, Colder actually purchased Numo. It was at that point that, from an operational standpoint, I was tasked with having to kind of integrate this new acquisition into what we did. And over time, just became more and more involved in the sales and marketing side of things. And so then I just kind of found myself where I find myself now. 
the operation side of it needs to integrate so much with the customer-facing aspects of what we do that it just kind of is a natural progression to where I am. Hey, Jim, what were some of the key benefits of the deal with Calder? For us, we're a manufacturing company. We have a lot of sports licenses. We've got an NFL license, MLB, a couple hundred colleges and universities, Anheuser-Busch, Miller Coors, and we always had a ad specialty or promotional products presence. However, Numo had spent a lot of money really having a strong promotional products presence. So for us, the acquisition was an opportunity for us to essentially double our revenue and also buy ourselves a little higher profile space in the promotional products world, combining that additional presence with kind of what we do well, which is we'd like to think that we actually make things pretty well from an operational standpoint. That's really our strengths. Our strengths are not necessarily sales and marketing as much as actual execution, we'd like to think. Okay, and I'm glad you mentioned the licensing. I think that's an often misunderstood piece of this industry you know, from the perspective of a lot of distributors. So you've got these licensing agreements with the NFL and the NBA and the NHL and all of these great schools. How does that translate in terms of NUMO, in terms of the average distributor and what it means, You know, whether they can do business with NFL teams, for example, by using your licensing relationship, or do they have to be licensed as well? Help explain that to the average distributor because I think it's confusing at times. Yeah, you know, I almost wish I hadn't said it. <laughs> anyway, really, unfortunately, to the average distributor, it doesn't translate at all. You know, we hear lots of times that, oh, you know, I've got an end user that is the official laser eye person for my local NFL team. So that means I get to put my local NFL team on on you know, they get to co-brand anything that they want to co-brand. Unfortunately, it doesn't quite work that way. And it depends a lot on the deal that the end user has struck with the team or with the league. There are a lot of moving parts to it. And colleges, it's not nearly as strict and difficult there from a college perspective. But typically, even the collegiate logo stuff that we're doing, distributors have a license of their own for either internal consumption on a college campus or for promotional products. Yeah, unfortunately, it's one of those things that everybody thinks, oh, we've got a license, we're able to put whatever we want to put on the other side of a can holder, and it just doesn't always work that way. Lots of times it does, but it's just it's not that simple. Got it, got it. Well, thank you for clearing that up. One question I had uh, about sort of your, your social media strategy at NUMO. Mark and I were chatting about it a little bit, and it appears as if Melissa McCauley has a, a much more visible presence on social media. And I, I kind of have a question along those lines. I'm sort of the same way at Brand Fuel. I've got a business partner who's very active on social media, and I'm really not on the personal side. And I'm curious, why is that not a priority for you personally? Personally, I don't know. I'll speak to Facebook specifically because I think we've got a really large following on Facebook. And I'll, I'll say this, we've had a presence on Facebook for many, many years. We've grown it very organically, and it's a fantastic space for those folks. And it's a great way for us to have relationships with a lot of people that we wouldn't otherwise have relationships with. Personally, I think no good comes of Facebook, right? <laughs> uh, you know, it's just not something I choose to be a part of on the personal side of my, you know. Mm -hmm. And I kid about that because, you know, it just seems like there's always a little bit of drama with Facebook, at least in my estimation. You know, in terms of Melissa being out and on the forefront there, Melissa's been with us for a little over a year now, and that's been something that we intentionally brought her on board to help have that presence on social media because she is the one who lives and breathes online there. So, you know, Facebook for us has been fantastic, and Twitter's been great. We've got a good Instagram following. I've got an Instagram account, but 
I, I say no to Facebook. All right. <laughs> Sorry. Jim, when we were just uh, getting on this phone call beforehand, we talked a little bit about you not being a boisterous person. And I'm really interested in your views on the role of ego and personality and really being out there as a prerequisite for success in this industry. And the context for people that are listening to this is that we were talking about how a lot of people in this industry are really loud and proud and like to talk a lot and are just really visible people, yet yourself, you've often shied away from that, yet at the same time, you still command this great presence and you've got a lot of power in the industry, although you come at it from a slightly different perspective. Do you want to comment a little bit about how it is that you've tried to position your personal brand in the industry? Yeah, you know, I don't know about commanding any power. <laughs> you know, what we do as a business is there's a little nuance to what we do and we're a little subtle. And for us, there are a lot of suppliers out there that have really, really thick catalogs, and I think it's important for those folks to be really out in front and consider, you know, maybe they're one-stop shop for distributors. Yeah. What we do, again, it's a little different, and it might take a little bit longer sometimes. Oftentimes, it doesn't take a little bit longer to get an order from us, but because we make things. And the degree to which we customize things is a little bit different than a lot of those folks. So all that, I guess, is what I'm trying to say is for us, finding distributors that work really well with us is a little bit of a more of a feeling out process. And there is a little bit of nuance to it and figuring out, you know, how we're going to work together. And, and more importantly, we're not for everyone. Right. So it, a, a lot of our conversations are, hey, this is kind of what we do. And we know you, we might not have an opportunity right now, but we want you to think of us in the future if an opportunity does kind of pop up. So it's not my personality to be that big and boisterous, but I also think that it lines up well with, with our business in, in that everyone uses the word consultative. But we really do want to be that, right? Hey, this is what we can do. And, and you've seen me refer folks to competitors all the time. Hey, you know, you need to talk to these guys. And anyway, I don't know whether that really answers the question, except that what we do is just a little bit different from other folks. And so it's really, really important that we have kind of that feeling out process with folks. I think it's a great answer. And I think what you know, I was ultimately going for there is that to be successful in business, one doesn't necessarily need to trump their successes and be overly, you know, boastful. And I think that that probably ties back into your not being on Facebook, because I think a lot of people that are on Facebook, or at least one of the big accusations is that it's a me, me, me type platform. There's obviously lots of people who do a very good job of it and are not like that. I don't want to lump everyone into that category, but I just think it's interesting to just reflect on the role of ego in business. The reason that why that was top of mind, Jim and Robert, is that at the expo, I had the opportunity along with Bobby Lehu to interview Marty Lott and Joanne Lance at Expo for a live version of this podcast. And Marty Lott, head of Sanmar, one of the industries, if not the industry's largest supplier, is pretty famous about not having an ego. He's a really low-key guy. He's really friendly. He parks ego to the side. And that was one of the things that I asked him. And it's just really interesting for me to see this connection between humility and just down-to-earthness and friendliness with business success. And I think it's inspiring. So there you go. Kudos to you, Jim. 
Well, thanks. Yeah. You know, we've got 700 people that I work alongside of, and I preach this to our folks all the time, right? We are all in it together. Yep. And each and every one of us has a series of decisions we make every day that we need to consciously decide to do what's right for our customer. And there are a lot more folks that are taking care of our customers than just one person, that's yep. for sure. Well, Jim, this is actually a fairly inspiring conversation, I think, because at least on the social media front and what you choose to do, the decisions you make every day, you know, you are who you are and you, you can't pretend to be somebody else. And, and I think the authenticity piece is really what's, you know, an important part of this particular conversation. And, and Mark had mentioned a bit earlier that his team at Rightsleeve really has, or he feels like has a, a real emotional connection to Numo as a brand. And at BrandFuel, we use your products and, and services a lot, but I don't think we have that same particular emotional connection. And I'm curious, you know, what do you all do to establish that connection with some distributors? And what's the trick to establish it with others? Is it simply the fact that a representative comes to our office more often than they do now? Or what's the answer there? You know, I have no idea. Uh, I'd love to know that. And I would agree wholeheartedly with what you said. The guys at Right Sleeve, I know a lot of them personally and have hung out with a lot of them personally. And you know, I've gotten to know Danny a little bit over the years also, but yeah, Robert, you and I have never met personally. Mm -hmm. We've got a few multi-lines in certain territories. I think we've got a multi-line that goes to visit you guys, but we don't have a sales force that's out in mass talking to folks. So I think that's one of our challenges in terms of establishing a personal relationship with folks. And even multi-lines to, to a certain degree, they're great, and, and we've we're, we're happy with the groups that we have, but they're still not out establishing a personal connection with us. And, you know, the right sleeve folks, believe it or not, I have some crazy eating, not crazy, but I, I don't, I'm, I'm a vegan, and uh, there's, a, there's a guy over at right sleeve that also is a vegan, and we found ourselves at an industry event one time commiserating about the lack of options that we had to eat, and we just have gotten to be friends over over the years as a result. So whenever we're together at Expo or wherever, we, we kind of seek each other out and, and make sure that we're, we're having at least one meal together. So I love it. <laughs> it's a really interesting question, Robert. And I think, you know, question for you, Robert, I know BrandFuel has got several really strong vendor relationships. And I know that, like I know Sanmar and Hit are really special vendors, just to name a few, for brand fuel. And I know that in conversations with Danny, and I think a couple of other your colleagues will often talk about like how much they love their Hit rep or how much they love their Sanmar rep and how they're in there on a very regular basis just building those relationships. So what to you, Robert, as president of brand fuel, are some of the ingredients that are necessary for that strong supplier-distributor relationship? Does it go beyond yeah. just a rep coming in, dropping cupcakes off? or? Yeah, no, no. I think that's a great question. And, and without naming any names, we've had a really large relationship with a, a particular supplier in the industry and still do, but it really was by far our biggest hard goods supplier for, for many, many years. And one of the people that you mentioned decided that she was going to make sure that she came to our office here in Virginia four or five times a year, maybe five or six times a year, and do a lunch and learn every time and show us the latest and greatest each time. And with that, she offered to do end user shows. So she probably does four or five of those per year with our various salespeople here. 
and she's offered bring the owners of the company and some of the top salespeople on factory tours down to their factory. And so I think those things that go beyond EQP, that go beyond the lunch and learn once a year, that type of thing, those are really what drive us to make decisions to change suppliers in certain cases. And, and in that particular case, a long-standing supplier that we had done an enormous amount of work with became a, a more of a secondary supplier along right. those lines because this person decided to really, really put in that effort. And it made a huge difference, and we all noticed it, and we all appreciated it. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. And if I, I was to weigh in on, there was the, the comment about the relationship between Right Sleeve and Numo. If I were to put my perspective on this, I think what's unique is that Right Sleeve is based in Toronto. Numo is based in South Texas, as Jim was saying. Neither of us have visited one another's headquarters ever. And hopefully, Jim, you will come at some point, and hopefully I'll have the chance to come visit you. But I would say that our relationship and bond with Numo has been formed around product almost first and foremost. That for us, because Numo isn't an everything to everyone type supplier, much more of a niche type supplier, that in that particular case, what's so important for us is that product fit. And once we find the product that really works, if it's then backed up by really good people that passionately care about their product, then that's the winning combination for us. And that may not be the case with, let's say, a larger supplier that sells caps and mugs and writing instruments where our relationship is a little bit more transactional. But once we get into the more niche-oriented suppliers, it's really important that there's that emotional connection with the product, first and foremost, and then backed up by people who really care about that product. And then for us, that is the combination that will cement a relationship forever. Exactly. So that's kind of what I was driving at earlier when I said what we do is a little more nuanced and a little bit more subtle. And once the light bulb goes off, you're exactly right. I think we have to create a bond with our product first. And then people will understand that, hey, we can actually deliver this stuff and we say we're going to deliver it. And while it may cost marginally more, the value to the end user can be a step increase in value for only an incremental increase in costs. Right. Mark, you've shared some of the uh, fantastic self-promos that you've gotten through Numo, and they really make you look good. They, I, I will say it is impressive. So great job, both of you guys. Hey, that skewbot that looks like a 1980s Pac-Man on the uh, Xeno is awesome. <laughs> right. thing is amazing. Yeah. So Jim, let's talk a little bit about manufacturing for a second. Made in the USA, is it making a comeback? Is it going to make a dent in the promotional products industry in the next five, ten years? What do you think? I don't think made in the USA specifically. You know, I think it's kind of like the old greenwashing days, right? Yeah, I think people like to say that it's made in the USA, and that's important to some folks. And while I do believe it is particularly important to some end users that are constrained by what they can buy because they are required to buy made in the USA stuff, in general, I think people would like to I think it's all about that value that is added from a manufacturing standpoint. And if suppliers can develop products whose value that they can kind of demand a made in the USA kind of an item, then uh, yeah, I think it makes great sense. You know, I don't think people are going to buy commodity-based items based on the fact that they're made in the USA if it's cost prohibitive. But put another way, the fact that your line is primarily made in the US, what competitive advantage does that give you? Jim, you're a smart businessman. You 
could produce your product anywhere. I know you've got 700 employees that are really important to you, but at the end of the day, I believe you've made a strategic decision to produce in the U.S. because it's giving you some sort of advantage over the jet lines, the PCNAs, the hits that are primarily producing offshore. Can you talk a little bit about some of the advantages you think it gives you? Sure. So we manufacture quite a bit of stuff in Mexico also, yep. but it is 10 miles from our facility in South Texas. I guess what I was trying to hint at by trying to create products that have enough latent value built into them to where it makes good sense is kind of where I was driving there. Yep. You know, and it comes back again to the very beginning of people understanding what we do and how it's a little bit different. We do a lot of customization of things in very small quantities that the big guys that have big, thick catalogs that are importing and decorating can't do. And for us, that is very strategic because we recognize that we may not be able to play that price game with some of those larger folks or choose to play that price game with some of those larger folks. And so for us, it's about customization. It's about the things that we can offer that the big guys can't offer. And so whether it's multicolor imprints, whether it's dye, being able to four-color process dye sub anything in our line, whether it's the changing th trim colors, thread colors, all of the different things that we can do to our products that kind of separate us from those other folks. And again, it all circles back to we have a certain class of distributor or a certain type of distributor that is seeking product like that. Mm. And you know, through that process of getting to know everyone, there's a whole lot of effort in what we do that's important that we're working with the people that understand what we do, that it lines up with their customer base so that we can all be successful, right? And so I guess that's kind of what I'm talking about. And if that happens to be made in the USA, then that's outstanding, right? And it kind of is an ancillary benefit. It, that distributor that's seeking out that product that is highly customized, they're not seeking a made-in-the-USA item. We're solving right. a problem for them for their customer base that's not has to be made-in-the-USA tick box kind of a thing. Right. And therein lies the advantage of making it in the USA because if that distributor is looking for something that's really customized and unique and needs to be done at a certain price point at a certain quantity, in some cases China and India literally cannot compete with that. So. Exactly. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, sorry, so, Rob. Yeah, that's what I mean by building in that value, right? You have to figure out what it is that where your barriers are from entry to what it is that you do to where, you know, the, the big daddies of the world can't go look at your booth and take it and have it in their booth. The next know, show. At the next show, right. Jim, do you all import any product at all uh, besides the, it, unless you would call the, the, the Mexican operation importing? Yeah, we do. We do, absolutely. We, we bring in some blank goods and decorate some blank goods. We also bring in a line of office supplies this year that are acrylic plastic that we're importing. A good portion of our raw materials are imported from Asia also. So, yeah, I mean, we, we do a little bit of that here and there. And, again, it comes from, you know, the, the stuff that we're decorating for that is blank, that is what would be considered kind of commodity-type items. We're typically doing it for a customer with whom we have an existing relationship that they understand, you know, different subtle differences in quality that we're going to be able to provide and just kind of makes good sense for them. When you look at one of our booths at a show, you do not see that commodity can holder anywhere in our booth. That's not how we're looking to start a relationship with someone by taking their commodity can holder business from one of our competitors. Jim, I think it's been in recent years, although I don't know quite when that Numo pivoted away from being known as the koozie leader in the U.S., or at least domestically produced koozies, into 
some more fashion forward product lines and I, I alluded to this in the introduction and you know a good example of that would be the Zeno which is that knit beer sweater the beer cozy like we like to call it here in, in Canada or the up your standard stuff that you're importing in from Asia or the city cut and sew that has been Etsy inspired and I look at that and I see that as so very different than the straightforward commoditized koozie business when did you start to pivot away from the core line and why? You know, it started, I don't know, four years ago, five years ago. And frankly, a lot of it had to do with the fact that we're looking at what's going on in that commodity kind of space and realizing that we remain a fairly large player in that space. And, and our unit volume on that commodity can holder grows every year. So it's still a big part of what we do. But we started looking at where that growth potential was. And I don't want to say that the market is mature necessarily, but not too many people are walking the floor of PPAI Expo and saying, oh my gosh, I have, I've never seen this can holder that folds flat, that is lightweight, that is mailable, that is fairly inexpensive. You know, it's not something that, you know, everybody seems to know about it, right? So we felt like we needed to start figuring out new items to offer. And so we expanded our neoprene offering into laptop sleeves, lunch bags, tech accessories, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And we started to find quite a bit of success with it. And what we started to find was distributors seeing what we could do technically sewing some of these more difficult items to sew, and they started to feel like, my gosh, these guys definitely, they will not screw up the commodity business, right? Mm. And so we started to do some work for folks in some more higher-end stuff, and then we started to pick up more of that unit volume of the commodity kind of stuff. And so as we started to kind of dabble in that a little bit more, we started to realize, gosh, you know, we may have the potential to be able to recognize what is going on in a retail space or from a trend perspective and try to translate that back to the promotional product space because we really know that, that marketplace well. We understand what price points need to be. We understand some of that stuff. And so kind of over time, we've started to figure out, like the, the Zeno is a great example of that. We saw a product out there retailing for 10 bucks, And, you know, gosh, there's room in here to bring this product to the promotional products world. We can make a little bit of money, and, and distributors can make a little bit of money, and we can still come in, you know, underneath that retail price significantly to where an end user feels like there's been some value. And so, frankly, the Zeno's been a fairly successful item for us. So we kind of built on that with the Up Your Standard line and then with the City Cut and Sew line also. I guess when it's all said and done, what we're hoping to do more than anything is show that our competency in some of the more difficult more expensive items shows that we're very competent to be able to produce commodity items also. You're kind of marketing yourself as, as oh my gosh, you can do all of this other stuff and you're creative with, with some of the, not that saying that we're creative, but you're able to do these other things and so I should think of you guys for this commodity kind of stuff. Well, the competency thing is, is huge, obviously, and you know your product's only going to be as good as, as the competency and motivation of your workforce, and I think we're curious with a company that has plants on both sides of the border, what things motivate your workers on the Mexican plant side and on the U.S. plant side? Are they similar? Are they different? How does that work? Completely different. It's funny. Our kind of corporate office in South Texas is an old carrot packing shed. And... Uh, <laughs> and and our floor, our floor does our, our manufacturing floor. We have one section that's air conditioned, but we're doing all of our screen printing in the old carrot shed still, and with roll up doors. It's not air conditioned. There's a the wind blows really hard in South Texas, and 
if you've ever been in a screen printing environment with flash units and dryers, it gets very, very hot. And it's actually, you know, it, it's easier for us to control the temperature without trying to air condition it. And with all the lint and all of the everything that blows around, it works a lot better for a screen printing environment. But we still like to say we're an old carrot packing shed, right? On the U.S. side of the border, our employees are, are typically more motivated by flexibility with their work, being a part of something, you know, we have a lot of long-term, long-tenured employees, and, and we've kind of built our business on working around their flexibility or their needs for flexibility. We can't pay everyone what we would like to be able to pay them, but the things that we can offer them are the ability to make sure that if they need to go take care of a kid or if they need to go take care of their family, that they're going to have a job when they come back. On the Mexican side of, uh, of the border, it's funny. Our facility in Mexico stands in real stark contrast to the carrot shed in South Texas. Steelcase has a plant right across from us where they're building office furniture. Panasonic has a plant right down the road from us where they're building TVs and assembling stuff there. We're in, a, in an industrial park that is it's far and away our nicest facility. And our employees there come to work feeling as though they're working for a, a quote-unquote multinational company, right? And, uh, you know, they, they feel like it's a lot more corporate environment down there. The, the supervision and the, the kind of mid-management folks, they're all, I have on jeans and a, and, a, and a t-shirt most days when I come to work. And down there, they're all in golf pants and collared shirts and, and very, very, very professional. And uh, uh, so, yeah, we're kind of bipolar in that down there. And, and a lot of our employees in Mexico are young they're college-age kind of kids, and lots of times down there, folks will send their kids up to the border where, where pay and compensation in a manufacturing environment is at its best in Mexico. And so they'll work and send money home. So as a result, it's almost like we have a very, it's almost like a college campus, right? It's, it's a lot of uh, those type age kids. They go to the beach with each other. They don't live in dormitories. We don't have dormitories in Mexico like in Asia, but... You know, they all live close to each other, and it's a neat little environment. But they feel as though they are they're working for a multinational company. So when suppliers join up with QCA or sign the PPAI Code of Conduct or are involved in Fair Labor Association, which we see that you are a member of, which is a fairly esteemed group, includes Nike and Apple and those types of folks, you've got a factory in Mexico, but it's obviously not, not in Asia. And so curious about... You know, why did you join that group, the FLA? When did you join? And what specifically changed at Numo or Colder since you joined? What, what was the purpose of that? You know, it's funny. And if you mentioned Apple. I don't know that I want to be lumped in with Apple's uh, fair labor practices. You know, we've been a member of the Fair Labor Association for I don't know how many years. It's been 10-plus years since uh, we joined up. And we initially, as most folks, we were asked to do it by a licensee and it was a college, I don't recall which one specifically, asked us to join, and so we did. Through QCA now popping up and the PPAI Code of Conduct deal, there's so many different versions of what social compliance looks like these days. Um, our facility down there has been Disney audited. We've been Walmart audited. There's so many different versions of, of social compliance out there in the, in the space. Frankly, we chose to be members of the FLA because they've been around, as far as I know, longer than anyone else, and we've been members of their group for a long time also. So social compliance, I think, is going to be a real, real hot-button issue going forward. It obviously is. It's huge now, and I think it's only going to become 
you know, as much as product safety has been uh, at the fore for the last few years, I think social compliance is going to is going to exceed that from a product safety standpoint. Primarily because, you know, product safety is while there's so much to interpret there, there still are some hard and fast guidelines that we can all bounce off of, right? Uh, we have some guidance there in the social compliance world. There's so many, you know so many different versions of what it is to be quote-unquote socially compliant, right? Very That's going to become you. more and more difficult, I think, for distributors and end users. Hey, Jim, just taking a look at the time here, it's gone by super fast, and I know that we want to fit in some fun questions from okay. Robert towards the end, but I've just got one more question, and I'll turn it over to Robert to finish it off. I'm curious about your management philosophy and how it is that you grow people who report to you. My management philosophy, right? How do you keep uh, them engaged? You know, how do you grow these people? How do you, how do you bring someone like Melissa McCauley to the next level? My father-in-law, when I came to work, I started on the floor, right? I was working, and he's like, you got to spend a few weeks out there learning what it is that we do because there's no process manual that you pick up, mm -hmm. which, by the way, I came from an engineering firm that had the first thing that you did when you were onboarded there was get your process manuals checked out to you, and they were four-inch three ring binders, you know, there were 10 of them, right? And it was, it was very, very different. Just like a brand fuel. <laughs> yes. And so, you know, he always tells me, don't make the same mistake twice. I don't care how bad you screw up, just don't make the same mistake twice, right? Yeah. And that has really, it resonated with me. And moving forward, that's kind of how I work with everyone. It's, it's, I try to give them as much space to do what excites them as I can, and if they happen to make a mistake, well, let's learn from it and let's move forward. And it's something I really, really believe in. It's not lip service, right? No one ever gets in trouble here, right? It's let's sit down, let's talk about it, and what did we learn, and let's let's move forward. And, and every opportunity that we have, I, I talked earlier about these decisions, right? And I preach it to our folks. We show up every day, and we, we all make a series of decisions. And even the folks on the floor, when they're pulling a squeegee, when they're putting their foot on a pedal of a sewing machine, they are consciously deciding to do something that's going to create value for yeah. our customers and end users, right? And if we all show up trying to make the right decisions, those thousand times a day that we have to make those decisions, then we're going to be okay. And if, if we happen to make a decision that doesn't quite add value for our customers and, and their end users, then what can we do the next time to avoid that? So that's what it is. It's just giving people space. Sure, go give it a shot. You know, this, this up your standard stuff is very, very out of left field for us, but let's see if we can figure out how to make it work. And if we can't, well, then let's figure out something different to do and take some lessons from that. Yeah. Robert, so, sorry about this. I'm just going to squeeze in one more question and yeah. give you the floor here because it just, it just came to me. You know, Jim, you, you talk about this idea of employees owning their decisions and every decision they make ultimately influences the distributors and the end customers. Does that look different for an employee that's sewing a koozie that is a little bit more on the commoditized side and is being pushed out the door at a very low price versus the employee that is handcrafting uh, something from City Cut and Sew where at least a viewer to believe the marketing is more artisanally produced where there is a more uh, emotional uh, bond between worker and product. Is that me just buying into marketing or do the workers on the floor, the way that they feel about their product, is it different given the product that they're ultimately producing? 
talking about believing the marketing right, we have to market to our employees also mm. that more the city cut and sew stuff's difficult to sew. Mm. There are a lot of challenges in sewing it, and those folks. <laughs> those those series of decisions mm. that they have to make over the course of a day, their decisions are, are a little different than those that are sewing the commodity-based stuff. And we've had good discussions with our folks. They would rather be over there sewing some of the commodity stuff because yeah. the decisions are a little easier for them over there. Yeah, you know, it's, that is a challenge, but those folks, you know, they make a little bit more money. It has been such a phase change for us bringing the city cut and sew thing to life. It's been a slog to get them to understand Wow, yeah, no, this is great. This is really, you know, and that's if you if you go to the website, you can see that their photos are actually on the website. And that was yeah. when when the light bulb started to go off that wow, yeah, this is really really different and really really unique and they are a part of something. You know, it's not someone a cheap can holder. Yeah. So yeah, they've bought into it. It's a lot more work for them and it requires a lot more effort for them. I'd like to think, or at least it would be my hope, that they have a greater source of pride than they would selling a commodity can holder. But frankly, I'd love for everyone to have a source of pride from what it is that we make and we create. I talk a lot about to our folks that we're in such a unique position in this world that when we have a UPS pup trailer that parks at each one of our facilities and every day what we make goes on that truck and gets shipped to someone. And what a privilege that is, right? We're in this in this world of... of of the cloud, we still are able to physically produce something that is going to end up somewhere. And our customers' names are on it, and their customers' names are on it, and what an awesome opportunity we have. Mm. Wow. I am inspired. Oh, all right. Seriously, Seriously that is awesome. No, it's That's, true. You know, I don't, and I don't yeah. think our folks, they get it sometimes. They don't, you know, on a day like today when, when there's ice outside and we were closed yesterday and we're having to figure out how in the world we're going to get all of our orders out, I don't think they're taking pause to say, oh, my gosh, we're creating something physical for people, right? They're, 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 <laughs> they're wondering why they can't work at home in the cloud. But, you know. <laughs> oh, gosh, gosh. Well, well Jim, thank you. I, I'm... Uh, I'm going to end it here with something that Mark and I will occasionally end it with, and it's designed just to get a, a bit of your personality out there in, in front of folks, and we, we'll throw out a few rapid-fire questions and just get your, your take on them. You ready? Are you game? Yeah, man. Let's go. All right. Here we go. John or Paul? John. Okay. I'm not surprised by that. Koozie or Foozy? <laughs> oh, my gosh, right? Foozy. <laughs> Keith or Mick? Keith. Yes. I think we've got a live one here, Mark. ESP or Sage? ESP. Okay. Care to elaborate on any of those answers? <laughs> the the John and Paul thing, right? After watching I think it was the Grammys, we have a we have a twenty one year old that works in our office and, and she really didn't know who Paul McCartney was. And then so we had that whole discussion in our office about John or Paul. I think the most shocking thing is most folks are ill-equipped to make that decision in general, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> Just dating That's himself. Great. That's great. Well, I asked that question of, of someone a couple of weeks ago, and I got the answer, George. So that was, uh, that was oh, nice. There you go. I could respect that, too. Anyone yeah. but Ringo, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Ringo. <laughs> Sorry, Ringo. Well, uh, gentlemen, this has been this has been a real pleasure, Jim. So so great to have you on the show. It's uh, certainly been on our wish list to have the great Jim Martin 
join us. And that's happened today. So on behalf of Robert, myself, and the whole Promo Kitchen community, a deep, deep thank you for the time you spent with us today. Thanks for having me, guys. And thanks for what Promo Kitchen does. It's such an awesome organization in the industry, and you guys are awesome. Thank you, sir.